0: Greetings and salutations. Good to have our listeners back, whether for the first time or our loyal listeners. Glad to have you with us. This is Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, joined with Justin Taylor. Colin is out today, and we have a special guest that I will introduce in just a moment. Just want to thank one more time Crossway, our sponsor for this season. And to you, if you're looking for a last-minute gift idea, John Piper's book of Advent devotions, a number of good devotionals uh, around Advent themes, and John Piper has one with Crossway this year, and encourage you to look at that. And also, I mentioned last week, but we'll highlight again, the new book by Johnny Gibson, Be Thou My Vision, which is an excellent resource. It has 31 days praying through... I've been calling it uh, a reformed version of the Book of Common Prayer in some ways. It's taking the the idea of praying through uh, kind of a daily office, but you can use it personally or for daily worship with your family and inserting reformed confessions and historical creeds. And it's really, really a, a lovely resource. And I've started using it since I got my copy last week we bought copies for all of our staff members at our church and really encourage to have people use it. In fact, we we bought three books, Justin, from Crossway, the ESV Concise Study Bible, the uh, Be Thou My Vision, and then Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies, if someone wants to start a a, a reading plan, a devotional plan for the new year. So, our guest for the last episode of this season and after this we'll take a break for several weeks over the holidays lord willing be back at some time in january thanks for being with us for this season of episodes and glad to finish the year off with dr joel beaky now i'm going to read just some of this but i can't i can't get through all of it because joel does a lot in fact he he told us he just walked into his office about a minute ago having gotten off of the plane. Now, I don't think he has a private plane that drops him right off at the seminary, so he did have to fly into Gerald R. Ford Airport, I imagine. But Joel is currently the president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. Been doing that since 1994, pastor of Heritage Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids since 1986. He's also The editor of Puritan Reform Journal, Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth, editorial director of Reformation Heritage Books, vice president of the Dutch Reformed Translation Society. He's written uh, or co-authored just 100 books or so and written many, many articles for periodicals, chapters, encyclopedias. In fact, this has contributed 2,500 articles. Is that even possible? 2,500 articles. And he has a new book. Uh, well, with all of that, he almost always has a new book, but he has one that just came out, Reformed Systematic Theology, volume three. I'm holding it up even though you're listening to this and can't see it, but Spirit and Salvation by Joel Beeke and Paul Smalley, the third in Joel's, uh, magnum opus, although we hope he keeps writing many more books on Reformed Systematic Theology, published by Crossway. His PhD is in Reformation, Post-Reformation Theology from Westminster Seminary, writing on the assurance of faith. Wow. Joel, thank you for being with us. It's great to be with you,
1: Kevin. Thanks for having me.
0: Let me ask a question just right off the bat with that whole list of things. And this is a question that that I get. And sometimes when people ask me the question, I say, well, let me tell you about Joel Beakey. The question I get sometimes is, now, how do you do all the things that you do? And I say, well, if you think I do a lot of things, go talk to Joel. So Joel, I know you don't want to, we're not trying to puff you up, but you you are amazingly productive and have produced lots of things. So tell us, how do you manage by God's grace to write so much, to lead a church, a seminary, to travel and speak? What is it that allows you to do so many things?
1: Well, I get I guess the short answer to that is I, I just say to people, my wife, <laughs> that's that's all I say, because I mean I I tell my theological students, don't don't try to you know copy me in any way here because I I am a workaholic. I I love the Lord's work and I work long hours and my wife realizes that my work is important and um yeah, she just lets me uh, work long hours, and I'm a plotter. But I think I think the most important thing in my life is that um, I I just was called by God in a, a moving, powerful way, just overwhelming way when I was uh, 15 years old to to ministry, to lifetime ministry, and I just want to give my all for that, and. I feel closest to God when I write, even though writing mm-hmm. hard work and sometimes it's frustrating. You know what it's like, Kevin, right? You you yep. you sit at your computer and the thoughts don't come and you're frustrated. And but other times I get what uh I'm sure you get this too. You get what I call a a writer's high, sort of like a runner's high when you've been running for a long time, and suddenly you can't click the keys fast enough and mm-hmm. you feel close to God, and maybe you're even weeping while you're writing and so I feel I feel like I'm a compulsive writer. I have to write even if I'm going to be published. It does so much good for my own soul.
0: Now, is this this same habits? Was it different when you had kids in the house? Is this somewhat tied to season of life? How how much have you grown into this?
1: Yeah, I didn't. I you know I was doing my. PhD studies. I didn't really publish any books then because I was consumed with full time ministry and full time PhD. So that was that was all I could handle. the The children did they suffer? I always said to my wife, you know, I, I did play with them for an hour or so after supper every night, then I'd go back to work. And I said, you know, if 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 any one of our children ever shows any signs of rebellion, I have to stop conferences. I have to stop a lot of stuff. And God was just really gracious to us with our kids. They just did wonderfully well. So um, it's just sheer grace. But um, yeah, obviously I work more now than I did then.
0: Yeah, and and do I have this right? I think I heard you say one time that that y- your discipline is, and you just alluded to it. Uh, you know, you have a meal, and you know, we had the kids. You spend some some kid time, but then you're going back in and doing writing from. You know post dinner until bedtime? Are you one of those guys? I always tell people yeah. I'm not like that. I had a friend who who wrote books and he would you know get up at four in the morning and write for four hours i, I need I need a a break. I need a a, a study time, but it sounds yeah. like you can hammer away at a few hours a day. Is that how you do your discipline?
1: It's hard to say. I just I do have a lot of things going on in my life. so during the day, of course, my study door is open here. And so I, I have a hundred different little things that happen. People pop in and, in the seminary. And so I'm I'm happy if throughout the day, I can just do all the things that come for that day, plus email. And then when I come back from supper, say 7.30 in the evening, um, I get a second wind. And my wife is also a late night person. So that's helpful. So then I work till 11.30, 12.00. And then I spend a couple hours of my life. We walk up and down Leonard Street here every night about midnight and uh, jump in the hot tub maybe and uh, have some time together. But um, I go to bed about 1 o'clock in the morning. So I'm not I'm not an early morning Puritan. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a late-night writer.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Justin, go ahead.
1: Joe, I'd
2: love to hear a little bit about your father and your growing up years. Uh, I know that you were introduced to – John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress through his regular reading to your family. Was he into the Puritans in general? Was he just into Bunyan? Does he have a similar ministry and uh, ambitions and work ethic like you have?
1: Yeah, my dad had a really good work ethic. All all, all four of my siblings, too, are are just really, yeah, they're hard workers. Um, My dad, just his life was the church. And he was a carpenter. He wasn't interested at all in making money, just enough to get money on the table, and the rest was devoted to the church. He had an eighth grade education, but he was uncanny in that he had just this really clear ability to teach simply and movingly, and he would often do it with emotion and with tears, and he would have an extended family worship with us every Sunday night going through Pilgrim's Progress. He'd read it to us for about 30 to 40 minutes, and we'd interrupt him and ask him questions, and he'd set it down, and he'd teach us um, often weeping, and it was uh, powerful. So he was a bit of a hyper-Calvinist, as was my background uh, in those early years, and um, it was only later on in his life uh, that he really had a lot of freedom in Christ, and just was very free with the offer of grace. He he changed in about his fifties after I was out of the house and after I was preaching. But he was one of those hyper Calvinists who just really believed firmly in what he and he lived it and he talked about it. And um, though though his theology needed a little bit of correction, he was he was he was bona fide. He was the real thing. And my mother was very very quiet about. Speaking about spiritual things, but was just a prayer warrior, and and very very loving and very kind. I didn't think my dad cared about what happened to me in daily life. All I knew is that he loved my soul, but my mother cared a lot about my daily life as well. So between the two of them, you know, I, I did have a, just a wonderful upbringing, a, a lot of love in our home, and uh, really close to siblings.
0: And where did you grow uh, up, Joel?
1: Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, so my dad was an elder for 40 years in the church, ruling named, elder. Same
0: denomination?
1: Yeah, and the the um it's hard to it's hard to explain, but in that denomination there were only five or six ministers. That that was typical. So the elders would lead the, the worship services. They'd read sermons from forefathers and then they'd pray and take the whole service. So my dad was really kind of like the senior elder for for decades.
2: And was the whole denomination
1: hyper Calvinistic? It was. It was Netherlands Reformed, and, um, and then later on there was a split, and uh, I, I, I was forced because two thousand people came out from nine different churches. I was really forced to start a new denomination, which is called Heritage Reformed. Yeah, and then we started the seminary at that time. I was a theological teacher in the in the old denomination as well.
0: This is a bit of a, a freewheeling conversation here, but I, I'm really curious your your thoughts on this, Joel. So we both have uh grew up in Dutch Reform traditions, though very different traditions. I grew up in in the RCA and I'm I'm not in the RCA and there are reasons for that, but I'm thankful for many of the things that I learned in yeah. RCA churches and being in Grand Rapids. I know you're very familiar with RCA and CRC. So I, I love my my Dutch Reformed roots, and it was very important to my family, and it mm. still is. I I will sometimes say jokingly, though it was serious, that if I ever had a, a girlfriend in high school or an interest or a date, my mom usually asked two questions, is she Dutch and is she Reformed? And <laughs> uh, I, I got the important one right. I, I married a Reformed girl. <laughs> um, she wasn't Dutch, and that's that's quite all right. But... I, I've thought before; it is it is very hard to find vibrant, dynamic, uh, evangelistically minded, thoroughly orc- orthodox Dutch Reformed movements. Not not just here, but it seems worldwide. It seems like you either have the the hyper Calvinism and tradition for tradition's sake. Or all across the board, you have Dutch Reformed traditions, which have really gone liberal and lost their confessional moorings. Do you see the same thing? And if you do, why do you think it's so hard to to find in the Dutch Reformed tradition that sort of, we love the confessional tradition, and we love Jesus?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? Your question has, you know, I've I've got a thousand thoughts I want to say all at once, and there's so many I can't, I, I don't know where to begin. But um, let me let me just condense it down to this. So, I, I there were a lot of very godly people in the denomination I grew up on that were not hyper calvinist Okay, I'm just saying there was a tendency in that direction. Right. Also in my father when he was younger. Joel, can you but say five there, seconds there was,
2: of just what, what is hyper-Calvinism? Just thinking of listeners well, who maybe don't know what There's that
1: many different brands of hyper-Calvinism, of course. But I'm talking about my father, for example. He would say you can only offer grace freely to those who have already come under conviction of sin. Uh, so not to every hearer. And um, so there was a lot of focus on the experience of sin and misery, first part of the Heidelberg Catechism and not as much on experiencing Christ in, in deliverance and in, in, in gratitude, the third section of the catechism. And, of course, I was saying we need to experience all three for 100%. Our, 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 we're, you know, we're, we're just very sinful, and we, we do have total depravity, but we have total deliverance in Christ, and that's also experiential and, and total total gratitude. So what happened with, when, when the split was, you know, from my perspective, I would say the 2,000 people that came out were probably the most, it is a general stroke, broad stroke here, were, were, were some of the most Christ-centered evangelistic people in the denomination. So our churches, Kevin, I would say, uh, I'm going to bet for our churches here. Right. <laughs> I, I would say our churches are very evangelistic. Every single congregation is very active in the community with all kinds of prison ministry, nursing home ministry, outreach ministry, Sunday school ministry, to the children in the neighborhood, and, and so on. Um, but what happens when you when you have a real focus on, on sin and misery and the need to experience these things is that when people do get delivered and find freedom in Christ, they do tend then to be very outreaching and full of Christ. And so I have a lovely congregation today of 750 people. It's very active very alive and I, I just can't ever think of leaving these people until until old age would take me away, I guess. So I think there's some general things that you said that were true, but I, I, I think there are there are groups that uh, also in the Netherlands that are that are very very alive and that are conservative and reformed. Going back to some
0: of our uh previous questions, just about all the things you do, what what where's your sweet spot. Now I know you do a lot of things and you must like all of them, but I sometimes look at different people around who are also very busy and, you know, might say that uh, I bet John Piper is, you know, most alive, maybe arcing a biblical passage or preaching and other people that might be traveling and speaking or someone like Mark Dever is an off the charts extrovert and I just no. envision him wanting to hang out with interns somewhere around the world speaking on church membership or something. What, no. what, what's what's your sweet spot that you feel like, wow, I could I was just
1: made to do this? Well, that's a hard question for me because I've been trying to figure out my whole life if I'm an introvert <laughs> or an extrovert. I think I'm both. I love almost everything about ministry. I love preaching, of course. And I love I love doing chapels for high school and elementary kids. that's a that's a sweet spot. And I love writing and I love pastoring. Um, but I think my drive, my burden in life, is to 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 not throw away the baby, but just just hmm. maybe the dirty bathwater of my background. I, my my passion is to is to preach and teach in a reformed experiential way. That connects with the hearts of God's people, and especially, um, I want I want the children of God to grow in grace and become more and more conformed to Christ, and to know the experience of what that's like. So it's not just head knowledge, or just I brought I was brought up this way. But I want them to be alive, and that gives me my greatest satisfaction when I see God's people growing and falling more in love with Christ and emulating Him, and uh, yeah, just just being conformed to His image.
0: Joe, uh, one of your many books uh, came out 2018, 500 pages. Also published by Crossway, Reform Preaching, Proclaiming God's Word from the heart of the preacher to the heart of his people. And you said before we we hit record here that you think this is maybe the first time that anybody has put this sort of vision to writing. So give us in a nutshell what what is this vision of experiential preaching? How is it different from you know, the renaissance of expositional preaching that we see in many quarters.
1: Yeah, well, it is it is expositional preaching. And it is, um, although in the, you know, in the Dutch background tradition, we do use the Heidelberg Catechism as, as, as a basis for, for preaching. And we do preach some of the feast days as well. So we're not always preaching directly through a Bible book. But um, Reformed experiential preaching is always expositional. It's always doctrinal. It's always biblical. It's always practical, but it's also experiential, which is what I argue that everyone from Zwingli all the way down to Lloyd-Jones has been doing of a conservative reform tradition for the most part. Um, it it lessened in the, in the 18th century with Charles Finney coming on the scene and Arminianism, but uh, all the preachers basically that were reformed from Zwingli all the way to um, early 18th century or mid 18th century, certainly through Edwards, we're, we're experiential. And by that, I mean, they would explain how the Holy Spirit works, all these wonderful doctrines in the soul and, and and how we live these doctrines and how they become alive for us. So just in a nutshell, it's one thing for me to stand up and say, you know, dear, dear church family, the, the doctrine of Christ's intercession is, is a precious doctrine to us because it means Jesus is interceding for us. And that's wonderful. That's the doctrine. But it's another thing to say, have have you ever experienced the sweetness of the intercession of Christ That every single moment, every single second of the clock, he's interceding for you individually as well as collectively for all his people, so that when you come to the end of your prayers and you're you're in in deep trouble and you're, you're overwhelmed with affliction, you can rely on him that he's interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. Do you know the sweetness of that? you know something like that so that's just a, a little flash of a experiential comment that a minister might make so we're bringing people through experiential preaching like the puritans did like calvin did to 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 say these things that we teach every single doctrine we teach is also a doctrine that has an experiential practical dimension to it and that makes christianity Uh, become not just alive but just vibrant in in your life Uh, and and preachers who did this throughout church history uh, tended to have very mature uh, congregations who who strove for holiness and um, were very Christ centered and so what I'm trying to say is experiential preaching is the one dimension of preaching today that is most minimized at the peril of the church. Joel, talk
2: to us a little bit about the contemporary Reformed world in America, because not all Reformed folks share your enthusiasm for the experiential aspect. There's there's a number of Reformed people that are very suspicious of Edwards and the affections and think that yeah. this, this whole stream leads towards introspection and not having true assurance. And I know assurance is something that has been uh, at the forefront of your ministry for a long time. So can can you talk a little bit about the wider Reformed world? What, what would people, I mean, as you explained it, my heart's resonating with it, but certain reform types would be, uh, if not gnashing their teeth, at least gritting them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Justin, I owe a lot to you, a lot to you for your willingness to publish the first book ever written on Reformed experiential preaching. And then calling me up, I don't know if you remember, but a month or two later, and you heard that I was working on my life's legacy of teaching systematics. And you asked me, you know, is this going to have the same experiential flavor throughout? And I said, of course. And you said, well, send me send me a manuscript proposal, because if we're going to become known as the Reformed Experiential Preaching Publisher, or one of them, we also would be interested in Reformed Experiential Teaching. and When you said that to me, you don't know that, but chills were going up and down my spine, and tears were in my eyes because it excited me so much uh, that you'd be interested in that. And uh, I, I feel very strongly this is what the whole Reformed world needs more, more of. Now there's an increasing number of Reformed preachers that are preaching experientially, and I rejoice with that. And that's running across all kinds of Reformed denominations, and through our own ministry of Reformation Heritage books, where we sell about 7,500 different titles from 70 different publishers, most of which have this flavor to them. Um, We're increasingly selling lots and lots of Reformed experiential material to Reformed ministers in a number of the Presbyterian and Reformed denominations. But yes, it's still a remnant. It's still not the majority. And the majority have become You know, they they preach maybe very soundly uh, the Reformed truths. But when you don't preach experientially, what happens is there's a certain amount of people that will peel off because they want a really close life with God, and they don't hear how that happens under such preaching. They hear the doctrines. It fills their minds, but it doesn't penetrate the depths of their soul. And so a lot of those people end up in Pentecostal churches where you get, you know, the preacher preaching to the heart, but not to the mind. And so my point, my burden is to show people that the preacher, and that's what Puritan Reform Seminary is also all about. We train men to preach to the mind, to the soul, and to the also practically to the hands and feet. We want to reach the whole man. And when you don't do that, it's <laughs> something's missing. And, and so people feel that. And often they say, oh, it's too boring. You say doctrine is boring. And th- that's, why, that's why we're writing this series of books for you, Justin, for Crossway, to show that no doctrine in the Bible is boring. Every doctrine is full of life. Every doctrine penetrates the experience for the soul. Every doctrine is practical in that it reaches our hands and feet. And so what we do in this series of books, and especially volume three, which just came out, on the spirit and salvation we're basically doing five things with my with my co-author my TA Paul Smalley, and he's taking my notes and flushing them out adding footnotes and all kinds of things so he's he's earned a full co-authorship here he's he's a dear brother so what we're doing is we're doing five things we're saying what does the bible say about this particular doctrine what does church history say pro and con then how do you experience it how does it made real to you in your heart of hearts in your inmost being and four, how is it then made practical in your life, uh, coming from within you, in your out, outward life? And then five, how do you end in daxology, praising God for this glorious doctrine? And so we end each chapter with, as you know, with a poem or or hymn in which you're praising God. So that is the old way of doing systematics. And then in this volume three, that just came out last week, we attach ethics at the end of soteriology because as you know very well, ethics often goes in a liberal direction today. I, I say it always goes about 20 20 years behind, 10, 20 years behind society, the world, uh, because it's not grounded in systematic theology and biblical theology. And so the old style of doing ethics back in the 17th, 18th century among the reform was to have it be part of your, your reform systematic theology.
0: A couple of years ago, Joel, I did a, a lecture here at RTS on Heisen, And mm-hmm. I, I used the, the volume that you did uh, years ago. I th- you think you did an introduction of his life and then you edited and collated some some sermons. I think that was actually in an RCA historical series that that book came out. And then I used some other resources on Frehlingheisen. And of course, he 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 had his imperfections as, as we all do. But what I was struck by his sermons is how, and it was a challenge to me as a preacher, how direct they were, mm-hmm. how it, it experiential. And, and one of the ways people may hear experiential and think, does that mean that the preacher's just, is he crying all the time? Is he getting emotional? Well, we're we're, we're not afraid of affections and, and that's good, but it, it's also a way of speaking to your hearers and you read those sermons and such a, a, a frank explicit directness to the hearer to consider their sins, to consider their lostness before Christ. When I teach pastoral ministry here and I just do a little section on, on preaching, cause that's not mainly what the class is about. But I I talk about the difference, but many other people have used the same thing, but I talk about the difference between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of what you were saying there about the intercession of Christ. It's one thing, and I think there are many good reform men who are well-equipped to preach about the gospel, but it's sort of a thing off to the side. It's here's how this system of salvation works. And isn't it good news? There's this thing, the cross and Christ and here who he is, and then we're sinners and there's a wonderful explanation of how the soteriology works. But w- what I tell is we need to then turn to our people that God has given to us to speak and say with directness of language and gentleness of heart and boldness of resolve, do you know Christ? Some of you here this morning are probably are living a double life. You're far from Christ. You've wandered from Him. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Would you come to Him? And I think many of us have not seen good models of that. It maybe it sounds too uh, has too much fervor to it. But but I do think there is something of that missing in some of our circles. And I, I commend to to people to read those old sermons. I know people don't read old sermons like they used to, but you really can learn in not only what they say, but the manner in which they say it, how directly they speak. I think Lloyd-Jones says it's the difference between being an advocate and being a witness, you know, yeah. saying, yeah, he, 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 here it is come. And and that's why, you know, Packer could say that Lloyd-Jones preaching hit him like, you know, electric shock therapy. There was yep. just something of the nearness of God. It can't be manufactured. And uh, none of us are going to preach like the doctor. I certainly don't has, have his giftedness, but I hope there's that directness. Are, are there other aspects of this experiential preaching? Or you mentioned models. Are there some uh, contemporary? We don't want to put anyone on a pedestal, but are there people that you would say, listen to this man or read these sermons or, or look at this sort of approach that would help us?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just backing up a moment to Friedenheisen. Now, now, Friedenheisen is very interesting because he was very, very direct. Now, he would be really almost on the extreme of the experiential tradition. That's right. How direct he was, and sometimes even saying, you know, using names to label the unsaved that were, were, were rather derogatory. And that that's that's a minority in the experiential tradition. I think he overdid it a bit there. And when he got older, by the way, uh, he pulled back from that. That's right. A yeah. Bit more. yeah. But yeah, I think, I think, you know, using Lloyd-Jones as a reference here is, is great because I, I use him as a chapter in my book on experiential preaching. I mean, Lloyd-Jones was a, a perfect example because he himself said, when I go hear a preacher, if he, he doesn't need to be extraordinarily gifted, but if I walk out of church and feel I've been in the presence of God, I'm edified. And uh, if there's something to do with the sermon, If there's something that needs to change in my life, if there's something, overwhelming impressions that come and I feel like I've been worshiping God and I bow in his presence. You see, that's what an experiential preacher wants us here is to walk away with. You want to be growing in grace. You want to be growing in, in a conscious, uh, experiential presence of the Most High God in the worship service and have that translate into a daily life in which you have genuine communion with God based in the word of God. And uh, there are preachers like, um, you you know, I mean, Sinclair Ferguson has that. Well, Mm -hmm. you you have it too, Kevin. Uh, When I listen to you preach, I feel like I've been in the presence of God. And uh, you you apply, you apply the word. But there are a number of Reformed preachers, and I don't want to be critical here, but there are a number of Reformed preachers who are fairly well known that I just feel like there's, from my background i just feel like there's very little application and all of a sudden they say amen before there's hardly any application and i go well where's the application who's gonna who's gonna change their life from from this sermon and and we, we i think the preacher was just getting warmed up and all of a sudden he clicks, <laughs> you know Um so i think application is very important and like you touched on discrimination um it's a disaster when a preacher says in his prayer, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know thee or know you, um, please please bring them to repentance or whatever. I mean, in my church, if I said that, people would be very upset. I mean, they'd, they'd be looking around, well, well, one person doesn't, you know, 749 people. I wonder who that one person is. No, no, you preach to the unsaved. You preach primarily to the saved, of course. But you, you in each sermon, you have some evangelistic note. And you're reaching out for the hypocrite. You're reaching out for the backslider. You're reaching out for the nominal professor. So in every sermon, you have all kinds of different hearers sitting in front of you. And the, the problem today is when you only preach to God's people comforting messages, you're you're not doing the full job of the pulpit. You're not being like a like a prophet of the Old Testament where you're warning the ungodly and you're calling the backsliding to return.
0: Yeah, I I get four sort of types of people in in my head. I just call them the the weary, the wayward, the lazy, and the lost. And Mm. it's not like every sermon I'm tracking through those four things, but it it helps me stay honest because I think any preacher, we gravitate towards some. And so you said, I think there's a lot of men who think everyone in the service every Sunday is in the, the weary category and that's okay. right many are and so don't forget that they need comfort they they've come and they're they're tired they're exhausted they're sick of their sins they need the healing balm of Gilead but if we think that's everyone every sunday and we're not preaching also to the wayward who are living a duplicitous life or the lazy who need an alarm to the unconverted to quote the the book or the lost and need you know us to defend The truth that we're preaching. Okay, some of you, there may be an objection that runs like this, and here's an explanation to it. I think because of our personality, upbringing, or where we've been, we tend to gravitate and think that every one of our hearers is in the same place and needs either just a big bear hug every Sunday, or they need a punch in the gut. And we need to remember there's a lot of different people, and they need to hear all of the contours of of God's word. And I think experiential, expositional preaching at its best allows us to do that.
1: No, oh, that's great, that's great. That just shows you how much of a Puritan you are. <laughs> well, there, well, thank you, that's a good compliment. Um, so, let, so can I just add one thing to it real quickly? Yes, please. So you have four categories and it'd be interesting to to mesh those four categories with, with, with the old Puritan categories. You know, William Perkins established seven categories. And, uh, but it's interesting, Like he would say, among God's people, there are those who are beginners in grace and they're lacking full assurance. They they, they're new to the faith. And then there's the the assured Christian who who's strong and and vibrant, but there's also the backsliding Christian. So and and there's there's or, or the careless. So there's three or four categories of Christians, but even they would even separate categories among the unbelievers. There's the impressed unbeliever who's still unconverted, but he knows what he needs. But maybe his heart is still in the world and then he needs to be preached to. But then there's also the indifferent or the hypocrite who's in the church. You don't, you don't even know why he's there. Maybe he's there because his parents want to be there. Um, so this includes children who are unsaved and, and, and teenagers who are unsaved. And they need a particular kind of address. But just like you said, not every sermon do you do you do you reach out to all seven of these categories or in your case all four but over a period of time if you're preaching the whole counsel of God you've got to reach all those people
0: Yeah that's right uh, Let's let's use that to transition and talk about one of your other big books I had my assistant pull up Joel Beeke books sorted by Amazon popularity as of last week Number one is your new Volume 3, Reform Systematic Theology, and number two is A Puritan Theology Doctrine for Life. Tell us about that big book, what's in it, and what you were hoping to accomplish with it.
1: Yeah, well, that book I I co-authored with with Mark Jones, and Mm -hmm. actually what happened on that book is he sent me 13 chapters to do uh, a a book on Puritan covenant theology, and I said, wow, Mark, these are fantastic. And um, by the way, I've been thinking of taking my life study of the Puritans and and doing a kind of systematic theology not of the Puritans but not touching every single subject but just touching those subjects that they really have something to contribute to the Reformed faith and um, I just said you know is that something you, you'd like to because I haven't done much with Puritan covenant views I said that would be a really important section of the book we could take your 13 chapters I could add some of mine we could see where it goes. He said, fantastic, let's do it. And I said, well, how about, you know, when I'm 65 or when I'm I'm retiring? He goes, no, let's do it now. I said, okay. He said, in fact, why don't you send me a list of subjects? I sent him 80 subjects. He goes, 80 subjects? This is way too. So we pared it back down to 40. And then by the time we got those 40 done, we added one. Well, oh, we got to do a Providence, John Flavel, Mystery of Providence. We got it. Okay, there's another one. We got it back up to sixty. And our goal in the book was therefore to give you all the highlights of Puritan systematic theology, and then give you eight or nine chapters to show how they took all those doctrines and brought them home to their marriage. That's a chapter to their family, to their to their own zeal to their meditation, to their prayer life. So hence the subtitle, A Doctrine for Life. And because it is such a big book, we were going to just do um, 3,000 in the first press run, but it, somehow people picked it up on social media just before it came out. And when it was at the printer, this is a really neat thing. We, we said, um, I called the printer and said, can you ramp it up to 6,000? He goes, yeah, that's fine. So we did 6,000 and all 6,000 were sold in the first six days. I've never had a book like that. And uh, so we went back to press with six more thousand and they were all gone in six weeks. And then another 6,000, they were gone in a couple months and another 4,000. And then since then, it's been reprinted several times. So it showed me something amazing. It showed me that there's a lot of people out there that want to understand the Puritans, know they have something special, know there's a spirituality about them. That could help them grow in grace but they have difficulty reading the original Puritans, so they hold back but now they have a book that explains what the puritans teach and they they respond to it and they love it and so actually that book is um probably my most popular book and a lot of it deals with i mean a lot of it's to be credited to mark jones because he had a wonderful job but uh, i love i love selling that book to people as well because It's an intro volume that gets them excited about the Puritans and then they start going to the, what they do, what what I tell them to do too is go from that book as an intro, go to the Puritan Treasures for Today series, which we're doing, which are just short Puritan books of 100 to 150 pages each where every sentence is edited and um, it reads like it was written yesterday. And and go through some of those, and then get into Thomas Watson, John Flavel, John Bunyan, some of the easier Puritans to read.
0: Justin, do you have a question, or I have more Puritan questions?
2: Yeah, I was going to ask on the Puritans too. That so somebody's in that position; they've kind of dabbled a little bit, perhaps they've read from the Puritan theology. Who are the best Puritan authors to start with, and what works in particular? If if someone says, I uh, you know I'm I believe you that they have a lot to teach us, but I want something readable and relatable to my spiritual life. And uh, I probably don't yeah. want to start with the works of John Owen, but where do I jump in?
1: Yeah, start with start with Puritan Treasures for today. There's about a dozen books there. Um, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear by John Flavel is a great one, or Stop Loving the World by William Greenhill is another great one. And, and then you guys at Crossway and Banner of Truth and, and RHB, we, we all have, a spattering of books where whether it's John Owen or someone else, we've edited them in a more mild way where they're very, very true to the original. But I did a book for uh Toledo totally Glory a long time ago that I often recommend Heaven Taken by Storm by Thomas Watson. And I, I, I just footnoted all the difficult words. And you know something like that is a good place to start. And then Watson in general. Yeah, the original Watson. He's, he's got short sentences. He's really pretty easy to read once you get going, and once people get hooked and feel the substance in these books compared to the typical book today, um, then 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 they're on the roll, and then they want to read Flavel, they want to read Thomas Brooks, they they want to you know Stephen Charnock's a bit harder, but I would say Watson, Flavel, uh, Bunyan, um, and and read the great classics. I mean, I get people coming to me who've never even read Totem's Progress. I mean, what, what a read that is! Uh, so, so start with some of the great classics. I have two
0: follow-up controversial questions about the Puritans.
1: Oh dear! So, so what? So anticipate them.
0: <laughs> okay, so here's one of a historical nature, uh, and and I've heard this argument before, and and I'm, I'm interested in how you respond to it because I I think there's, yeah, I'm just interested in how you respond to it. For good historians say, what say Banner of Truth, RHB, what sort of our tribe has done to reinvigorate the Puritans is uh, a bit of selective reading that the Puritans historically, the Puritan movement was broader than just The reformed guys that are being reprinted, that there were Arminian Puritans, there were Puritans that were more of a political nature, uh, that they, they weren't all, they didn't all fit this sort. Now, the guys that you're talking about were Puritans, but Puritan is not just shorthand for, you know, earnest reformed theologians. It was a broader ecclesiastical political label in England. And there were other sorts of Puritans. Than the ones that we might read, or Banner of Truth would republish. What do you say about that historical argument regarding the Puritans?
1: Yeah, there's a tad of truth to it in some ways, but it's there's a tad of truth to it at every movement in history. Um, the reformers are the same way. I just saw in Spurgeon's library down in, in uh, down in the south. Uh, Wolfgang Musculus in English is systematic theology. I was thrilled. I've never seen a copy of my life in English. And why why hasn't that been reprinted? Wolfgang Musculus was a great, great writer. Well, because John Calvin overshadowed him with his institutes. So there's a lot of Puritan books that aren't being published. Some of them don't deserve to be published because they weren't the best writers. They weren't the best preachers. Not every Puritan was a straight A preacher, and, and that's natural. That history is is unkind to epigons, and they kind of get left left to lay. But if you if you if you read the biographies of all the Puritans, it's astonishing. There's no group of writers in church history where such a large percentage has been reprinted. In the last 60 years, there's been 1,000 Puritan books reprinted. Now there's probably five to 10,000 that have been written, but some don't deserve a reprint. So I, I think you just need to look at it that way. And there are fringe members of the Puritan movement. There are, were a handful, less than 1% that were Arminian. John Goodwin being the most famous. Um, And then there are the more radical Puritans, sometimes we call pilgrims, who just cut ties with the Church of England altogether, weren't even interested in hearing anything about the Church of England. Puritans wanted the Church of England still to reform, even, even if they felt if they were kicked out of it. They still cared. They were real churchmen, the mainstream Puritans. So yeah, you have the more radical separatists. Generally speaking, they were not as good writers as the mainstream Puritans. A few of them uh, their books are known, but um yeah, so the movement was a bit wider. but the the cream the cream is being reprinted. That's
0: amazing. how many have been reprinted? That's a good answer. The second question, which m- maybe hits closer to home for for most people listening, a contemporary critique of the Puritans might go something. Like this. Uh, the, the Puritans w- were a bunch of dead white guys. That's how you might put it crassly. More sophisticated, you might say, well, th- they were writing from a place of privilege, or they were uh, in their time supportive of imperial sort of movements or certain specific ones, especially if you get to the American colonies you know, had slaves like Jonathan Edwards. So why, why are we spending all of this time in the Puritan? Sure. There's some things, but can't, can't we find the same sort of things from other folks? So how do you respond? Because it seems to me Puritan interest in the Puritans since whatever the, the say the 19th, 20th into our century waxes and wanes. And it was at a low ebb And then Lloyd Jones and Packer and the Puritan Conference and Banner of Truth and all the republishing. And I do have a fear, not that that's all going to dissipate, but it seems like in the last five to 10 years, there's been, even among, say, broadly evangelical folks, a a reinvigorated pushback on the Puritans, not for some of the reasons that may have existed 50, 60 years ago, but for these new issues of class gender race identity what's your apologetic for the puritans yep. when those objections arise
1: yeah well first of all let me say reformation heritage books our sales are going through the roof and Glad we sell hear. a lot more than the puritans and and in my own reading lifestyle i i always have a puritan book going but i have a lot of other stuff going as well so we're not just dependent on the puritans and no one i think is advocating advocating that today. Um, but more people are reading the Puritans than ever before. It's not de-escalating. It's 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 expanding. And um I, I I think it's because people want a close life with the Lord. There's a hunger out there in our secular world to have a more real, a more close life with the Lord. That's where the Puritans have their strength. So I've served three churches in my life. They've all been between 700 and 800 people. And in all three churches, when I came there, they weren't doing much reading. Now, all three churches, I'm just really passionate about getting churches to read. And I've seen this with other ministers, too, where they've done this same thing. The level of holiness in the church will grow. When your people are reading the Puritans, they're being searched, they're being encouraged, they're being allured, they're they're seeing the the reality of the Christian faith uh, as never before. And so the Puritans have a lot to offer us. Do they have their blind spots? Well, of course, every movement has their blind spots. Slavery is an abhorrent thing, Uh, 100% against it, no matter what excuses you can use how well the puritans treated their slaves and brought them into their family worship and brought them to church and many of them were converted you can use all those arguments but the fact is we are totally opposed to that but then you need to ask yourself the question how many puritans had slaves so everyone always mentions jonathan edwards but scholars today are constantly debating, is Jonathan Edwards a Puritan or not? Because he the 18th century. The Puritan movement is often considered to have expired in 1689. Some dated at 1704. Edwards was born in 1703 and lived to 1758. If you count him as a Puritan, yes, then he's one Puritan who had a few slaves. Um, you tell me, Kevin, what other Puritans had slaves? Very, very few the slavery movement was largely an 18th century movement um, in, in America and it's spilling over into 19th century when there were no Puritans, uh, unless you count Edwards as one. Uh, George Woodfield is a different stripe than a Puritan and, and, and all the other leaders after that. And so a lot of them had slaves. Yes, there were maybe a handful of minor Puritans that had slaves. Totally wrong, totally a blind spot. Uh, And I I totally condemn it. But what I don't appreciate is when people say, oh, the Puritans had slaves. Mm -hmm. They should say probably 1% of the Puritans had slaves. And we regret that. Uh, Maybe 2%. I don't know the exact figure. But very, very few Puritans had slaves. And so people who are... Trying to impugn the movement due to imperialism and those kinds of things today, they're going by other people, 19th century people, 20th century people, and people around them who are who are saying all kinds of things they're not aware of what they're saying that aren't aren't really true. They're caricatures on the internet. And they're always, or not always, that's exaggeration, almost always people who haven't read the Puritans themselves. Mm.
0: One of the one of the resources we haven't talked about regarding the Puritans is the the video series that that you did and there's others and I, I think I have a brief talking head appearance in there. Yeah. But you know, I, I watched that did that come out last year? Whenever it Yeah. Yeah. Uh the Puritan documentary. Yeah. The Puritan documentary. I watched the whole thing through uh and you know, I did it in the morning when I was on the treadmill or on my bike or it, but it just struck me. This is amazing. We have such an embarrassment of riches. Uh, anybody who's getting up to, you know, exercise in the morning or do something, you know, you can be more spiritual than me and watch it with your kids and pray together or something. But we have such an embarrassment of riches. You can sit and it's very well produced and it has good teaching and it, and it gives uh, certain vignettes of individuals. And it's a really good place to start. Or if you've been in the Puritans a long time, it's just a great place to kind of give a summation of it in several hours of this documentary. So really well done and commend it. How can people get that documentary, Joel?
1: Yeah, heritagebooks.org is the cheapest place. You can get it probably, I don't know, almost 50% off now. I think it's $80, $90 and, and it was 150 retail. Yeah, so what that does is it gives you an intro book to the Puritans, just a really simple intro book by Michael Reeves and myself gives you the two-hour movie, and we, we dumped four hundred thousand dollars in producing that movie, so that was I mean it was a real investment on our part. But um, yeah, I I think God has really blessed it. It's gone it's gone very well. And then there's thirty-five lessons on the Puritans, just giving you introductory lessons by people like yourself or Saint Clair Ferguson, and I've got some in there as well. And uh, on different aspects, the Puritans on marriage, Puritans on family, Puritans on conversion, Puritans on politics, etc. And 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 blind spots of the Puritans, that type of thing. And what we're doing right now is we're taking that Reeves Beaky book out, uh, and we've rewritten a few chapters and polished it up a bit more, and we're publishing it as a paperback that will come out in February. So if people want just a separate little book of an intro to the Puritans, that hopefully will become um, just a standard book to hand out to people all by itself as a, as an intro to the Puritans.
0: That's great. Justin, one last question, and then I'm going to ask for some book recommendations as we wrap up.
2: Joel, if you could hang out with one Puritan for the day,
1: <laughs>
2: who would you choose?
1: Oh, man, that's so hard. That's so hard. Um, right now the name that pops into my mind is actually a Scottish Puritan. So I'm gonna use a Puritan with a small P instead of a capital P, but um, I'd love to be with Samuel Rutherford. I'd love to say to him, tell me about your love for Christ.
0: How did you write such beautiful letters?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had Rutherford's unabridged copy of his letters, which is like six, 700 pages on my nightstand for more than 20 years. Whenever I would feel the least bit down, I would just uh, pick up that book and start reading it. I didn't have to read more than two pages where he just filled me so with Christ. He just <laughs> lifted me up again. And it's it's just great. So we are doing, by the way, this is exciting. I, I do want to say this. We're doing a 13 volume of the complete works of Samuel Rutherford in the next nine years. That's what is projected anyway. Averaging 921 pages per volume. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, John Coffey, Matthew Vogan, Mark Kohler, myself are five editors of the series. We have 71 people involved signing contracts for, for prefaces and editing each volume. And uh, three of the volumes have never been translated from Latin, including a systematic theology against Arminianism that Rutherford wrote. That's that's being translated as we speak. So it's very exciting. I, that's great. Yeah.
0: I was going to ask if John Coffey, you know, John was my doctoral dissertation supervisor and of course did his doctoral work on Rutherford. And uh, yeah, he's an expert. I'm really glad he's part of that project.
1: Yes, he's great. And 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 Dixhorn, uh, he's he's become the lead editor. He's kind of organized it. We got huge style sheets of, I don't know, 20, 30 pages of all the details that we have to remember with each book. So yeah.
0: Final questions here first just your books you have so many books we only talked about three or four is, is there another book or two you would want to mention that's one of your favorites that you've written that you would love for people to to check
1: out sure thank you for that opportunity um yeah meet the puritans i wrote with randall peterson and what that does that's kind of a companion volume to a puritan theology puritan theology gives you their theology and meet the puritans gives you the life story most of them were in prison and <laughs> all kinds of things and persecution they, they went through. So they didn't always uh, live this kind of imperialistic, free life. Uh, they, were, they were people who suffered. They, they lost half their children. And so I tell those stories. A lot of people use this book as a daily devotional. Just read one story a day. 150 Puritans all have been reprinted. And then we have at the end of each article of their life, we give you one to two paragraphs on each one of the seven hundred books that were reprinted by the Puritans by the time it was written. Now there's we're, we're rewriting, we're going to add it to it now next year and bring it up to the thousand mark because another three hundred titles have been done. But so that gives you the biography and the bibliography, and then the Puritan theology book gives you the theology. And then the other book I quickly mentioned is uh, Living for the Glory of God, which I did for R.C. Sproul, uh, Introduction to Calvinism. And what I tried to do in that book, uh, with the help of Sinclair Ferguson, Michael Hake, and some other guys, uh, we wrote a book where we're trying to present that Calvinism is warm and contagious, not just cold, distant, causal, winsome, and the best way, the Reformed faith is the best way to interpret the whole of Scripture, to bring the whole counsel of God. And we look at all different aspects of the reformed faith, like the reformed view of politics, reformed view of marriage, reformed view of uh, ethics, reformed view of uh, doxology, as well as the five points and things like that. That's great. So this
0: is a, a, a very hard final question because you have so many books that you know and love. And I'm just going to ask if you have one that pops to your mind in a few different categories. It could be an old book. It could be by a contemporary author um, could be published by RHB or by Crossway or anyone, but say there's a, a minister listening to this podcast and wants an edifying, uplifting biography of a pastor. Go. What book do you recommend?
1: Oh, yeah. I would say Arnold Dalimar's two-volume set of George Whitfield or the two volumes of Spurgeon's Life. Those, those have moved me more than more than anything else. Uh, that's great. What
0: if there's a what if the pastor says I want to read a book to help me grow as a preacher in the new year?
1: Yeah. Um if you haven't read the classics, I would read lectures to my students by Spurgeon, Preaching Preachers by Lloyd Jones, and don't forget Pastoral Theology by Thomas Murphy. That that's a great 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 book as well.
0: And then what if somebody uh a, a lay person out there wants to read more History. They're not looking to get a PhD in history, but they want to get some history of, let's say, in particular, post Reformation Puritans to the present. What book or books do you recommend to understand that better?
1: Yeah, I would go in different categories there. Carl uh, Lindbergh's book on, on the Reformations, uh, mm-hmm. I think, is, is really, really readable and um, pleasurable and just really informative and good. Um, the Puritans beside stuff that I've written if I had to pick the best Puritan book I would say Worldly Saints by Leila Riken. that is really good and and simple to read but just very informative and Bruce Shelley has some really I don't like the opening chapter or two on the New Testament but his for one volume church history you know for a beginner that's a really good book
0: uh, I'm yeah, and that's another conversation. Maybe I'm always looking for that because besides Bruce Shelley, when people say, you know, someone in my church, I want to re- I want a summary. I don't want to read multiple volumes, but I want something more than a hundred pages. Yeah, give me a beginner's introduction to church history. I go back to that, and I don't know if you know that somebody needs to write a, a new version of that or do something. that yeah. That's yeah. Okay.
1: I I don't think the best thing has been written that. If you want it really, 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 really short, um, you know, we took Sinclair Ferguson's yeah. five-minute summary of of, of of all his um, uh, things he did in, in the Columbia, South Carolina pulpit, and we turned it into a little book. Um, but that's that's like two pages per century. Uh, that that would be <laughs> that's where you could start out. But he also did another book now that uh, Reformation Trusts. That's right. Uh, that's maybe a two hundred page paperback. That that would be good. That would be good as a starter.
0: Last category: someone in the new year wants to read a book that will magnify the cross of Christ.
1: Yeah, um, you know, Dwayne Ortland's "Gentle and Lowly." Uh, it's just a, just a really moving book for a lot a lot of people, and I think rightly so. That's been really popular. RHB, 2 We've sold thousands of them for Crossway. That's a great book. Uh, and if you want something a little bit older, I think The Suffering Savior by um, F.W. Krumacher. is just a really moving book. He makes Christ's suffering so very real. Uh, I wept many a time reading that book, what my Savior has done for me. And then if you want to go back to the Puritans, um, when I was 17 years old, I read Christ Our Mediator by Thomas Goodwin. That's the book more than any other book that brought me to spiritual liberty in Christ and to see my life was hid with Christ in God.
0: It's wonderful. Well, I'd love to keep talking about books, but you just you just got back to town and uh, so grateful for you taking the time to be with us, Joel. Thank you for your your work in the church and in the seminary and publishing and your own writing and pray God gives you good health and good energy for many years to come. So thank you to all of our listeners out there. Lord willing, we'll be back in the new year. And until then, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. Amen.